Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Duget, the host of What is Black podcast. Throughout the month of June, What is Black podcast episodes will be presented by Audible. I enjoy listening to books on Audible and excited to share that this month I'm launching What is Black's book club. Our pick for this month is Genesis Begins Again by Alicia D. Williams. Alicia will be a guest on an episode airing later this month where I talk with her about her book. Audible provides podcasts, wellness programs, Audible originals, and books that you'll enjoy as well. So sign up today for your free 30-day trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what is black. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash what is black to get your copy of Genesis Begins Again by Alicia D. Williams. And stay tuned for more information about how you can join our first book club. Hi, everyone. When I recorded this episode with Dr. Margaret Hagerman about her book, White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America, I had no idea how um, important it would be given um, what's happened over the last couple of weeks um, with the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, um, and the social disruption um, and change radical change that needs to happen as a result of, not just as a result of their death, but I think it is highlighting that their deaths are highlighting the importance of us um, rethinking how we need to move forward as a society to create more equitable, um, achievable attainments for not just um, for everyone. Um, I know my podcast focused primarily on raising um, healthy and thriving Um, black children and teens. But the more I think about it, right, how can our teens um, be healthy and thrive when they're under constant attack or fear of being attacked? So we need to broaden the conversation. um, And I'm so happy to see uh, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-generational protest and wanting to um, stand up to be allies and to Um, call um, to account um, the need for change, um, change that needs to come sooner rather than later. Um, So I'm so grateful and honored that Dr. Hagerman um, joined me for this conversation. And I'm releasing this episode earlier than I had anticipated. Um, But I think you'll, well, I think enjoy the conversation is probably not the right, I know it's not the right words, but I hope that you can share this conversation um, with your friends, family members, associates, colleagues, whomever you feel um, um, this word will make a difference and resonate with. And if not, hopefully something to make them think about. And hopefully over time, um, with further processing, um, with further evidence to the fact that racism must, must be ended, it is a public health crisis just as COVID-19 is a public health crisis, um, we must, um, not only as a physician and a public health advocate, as a mom, um, as a human being, um, we must make these changes. And I hope that um, what I do is a small contribution, um, a small example of what can be done to raise awareness um, to, to make the world better. I do have hope. And I hope that you find this conversation, whatever you take from it, I hope it, I, I, 
words really can't explain how I feel right now. But um, thank you for listening. And please share your um, thoughts and comments if you feel moved to do so. Um, I definitely want to know what more I can do with this platform. And I need your voices. I need your feedback. And even if it's just a thumbs up, a heart, um, I'm, I'm blessed to have that. Um, because it does help me to know that I may be going in the right direction. And if I need to, if I need to pivot or I need to do things differently, I'll do that um, so that I can help uplift and really help make a difference um, in any way that I can. We all can make a difference. And I think you all participating and listening and sharing. That's one thing you can do. But also, I pray that you take care of yourselves this is a lot of information that's going on this week, this past week, and will continue to go on, I think, in the in the forthcoming um, weeks. So please take care of yourself. Um, I hope, you know, give yourselves a big hug. Take time out from watching the media. Um, and if you need to take a pause and listening to this podcast, I'm fine with that. Um, come back when you're ready um, and you feel up to it. Um, I wish you peace and blessings. And encouragement. And thank you for um, joining me on this journey. And I hope you and I hope you get something out of this conversation. So welcome everyone to another episode of What is Black podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Margaret Hagerman. Dr. Margaret Hagerman studies racial socialization or how kids learn about racism, racial inequality and racial privilege in the context of their everyday lives. She is currently an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University and a faculty affiliate in the African American Studies Program and the Gender Study Program. Today, she joins me to talk about her book, White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. So welcome, um, Dr. Hagerman. Thank you so much for having me. So before we started, I just I definitely wanted to let you know that I enjoyed um, the book. I did a I did both an audio, the audio version an audiobook as well as the um, actual actual hardcover um, of the book. So before we start, I just want to say I really enjoyed it. Um, and as I introduced you, you are you you study um, racial socialization, and you're also a sociologist by training. So I was wondering if you could share for our audience a little bit of what what a sociologist does and a little bit about your um, your professional your professional work. Sure. So sociologists are really interested in understanding patterns in our society. So looking at how patterns, like why patterns exist, um, and then also how patterns interrelate. So in order to understand something like how kids learn about race, um, you know, sociologists are interested in, in looking at a number of different areas of, of research and patterns in those areas. So looking at education and families and, um, you know, wealth disparities and, and, and racial disparities and so on. And so sociologists are really interested in, in understanding these patterns in our society, how they interrelate, how um, the things that happen at the individual level that feel very personal are oftentimes rooted in much larger institutional or structural patterns and practices. Um, and so our job is to try to do research and figure out, you know, those relationships and how, how they help us understand our world and hopefully um, make it better. That sounds awesome. My son, who's a senior in high school, is taking a sociology class now, and he seems to be very, very interested in the topic. So when I had the opportunity to learn about the book from one of my colleagues, 
and learn a little bit more about sociology. Also, my husband majored in sociology when he was um, an undergrad. But, you know, when you're dating at the time, it's like, okay, sociology. (laughs) He told me a little bit about it. Um, But I the more I'm learning about it, the more fascinating um, that field of study is. And so just want to kind of bridge your um, your background in terms of um, your professional background and the book. First and foremost, how did you even get in get involved or interested in studying racial socialization? And then how did that then develop into um, your book? So it's an interesting question. I've thought a lot about it because I get asked that question a lot. Um, And, you know, I think part of it is personal, you know, sort of growing up in a white affluent suburb in Massachusetts. And like, I remember having lots of questions about you know, why it was that I looked around me and everyone looked the same as me. And I would leave my community to, I ran track. And so I would like leave my community to go to other parts of the, of the state. And I would notice that, you know, the racial demographics were different. And I, and I remember not having even the language to ask questions to adults about these patterns. So that might be a part of it maybe. Um, but I also really attribute most of my scholarly interest in this topic to the great teachers that I've had and, you know, classes I've taken where, I've really started to question, you know, why is it that young people have the ideas they have? You know, where do they come from? How do they develop? And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, I think it's probably a combination of both those personal experiences and then also my professional experiences. I've also spent a lot of time working with kids and young people and youth. And I think that, um, you know, you spend time with young people and you see that they have lots of questions about the world and they want to talk about these things that, that adults often tell them, um, is inappropriate or taboo or, or things of that nature. So yeah, I think it's kind of a combination of all those things that, that led me to write this book and do this research. I think, I think we share some, some commonalities in regards to that. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily do research in racial socialization, but it is a, a special interest of mine um, as a pediatrician and as, you know, learning more and also with my with my own um, childhood experiences and my own um, kids, my own kids experiences, how like you said, how how intertwined our understanding of race and how it shapes us as individuals, as a culture, as as, as structures um, really makes a difference. So I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I think it's, it's, it's very fascinating. And I think for me growing up as biracial, being being fair skinned, one of the lightest people in my family and many people questioning my racial identity, some of that is why I think I'm also interested in the topic and just also knowing the historical context um, that race plays. So I think I think, you're, you know, you're studying a very important, important topic. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I think that those questions of identity are, are so important. And, you know, the more kids I talk to, and I don't know if this has been your experience working with young people in the capacity that you do, but the more kids that I that I talk with about these things, um, you know, the more I realize that there are so there's so many complexities going on and so many questions that young people have about who they are and how they fit into the world and whether it be about race or class or gender, you know, there's so there's so much that young people are trying to navigate. Um, and so I really appreciate the work that you're doing in, in, in putting this podcast together. And then also, of course, your applied work with young people and, and your professional work um, that, I, that I know is really great, too. And I think what's also really fascinating about your book um, is is again, how you talk about your work with young people. Because I think for the most part, um, my understanding of racial socialization or coming to understand and read more about racial socialization has really been from the perspective of the parent. 
Whereas in your book, right, you take, you actually are asking young, you're getting feedback from young people as well as the parents. So I, so, so I guess as a teaser to kind of really talk, if you can just talk briefly about an overview of the book and we can get into um, those conversations you've had with both the young people um, and the adults that are focused in your research for the book. Yeah. So, you know, when I was doing the preparations for this project, this actually took me about 10 years to put this whole thing together from start to finish. And when I, when I began this work, I noticed that most of the research on this topic used this term racial socialization. And I think this term is, um, you know, really helpful in getting people to understand what, what, you know, this work is about. But, um, a lot of times people think of socialization as something that happens to young people. So like, I often hear people say, say, oh, you know, kids are socialized to do this, or people are socialized in these ways. And I think that um, while, of course, adults and teacher, you know, parents, teachers, doctors, social workers, you know, all of these different adults can shape the experiences of young people, I think that kids are, are really making sense of the world on their own also. And it's not just about things that are happening to kids, but it's about how kids are active participants in their own worlds and in their own construction. Of, of ideas and how they make sense of, of what, what they see around them, right? Kids are interpreting the social world, and so they are playing an active role in this learning process. And so in the book, that's that's why I'm like, all right, well, I need to figure out how white kids are actually interpreting race. How are they thinking about race? How do they think about themselves? But then how do they think about the positions of, of people around them in our in these sort of social hierarchies that we have? Um, how do they understand you know, racial conflict? How do they understand racial violence? How are they making sense of things that are happening in the media? And I think, you know, talking to their parents is helpful in understanding, you know, some aspects of a child's life. But ultimately, I think if we want to know more about how young people of, of all races are thinking about racism, we should really go straight to the source. We should go to them and we should talk with them and try to create opportunities for them to share their lived experiences and their perspectives. Um, and so that's what I seek to do in, in my research overall, but in particular with, with this topic. So that got me to, I mean, in the very, very introduction of the book, I think you do an, a nice job of really outlining what the, you know, what a reader sh- can anticipate um, from, from reading the book. And there's one sentence, which sort of like at the end of um, several paragraphs that, that really, that really talk about what is, the, what is the heart of the book? So on, on page three in the introduction, um, you wrote to put in simple to put in put, to put it in simple terms. Then all children growing up in the United States have lives that are structured by race, and this includes the affluent white kids um, in this book. And I really found this comment interesting, and just sort of as a follow up to your discussion about um, why it is you wanted to talk to youth in the book. So I wanted to to dive into that a little bit more about that that understanding that. You know, I think, you know, being African-American person of color, right, I do talk about race. You know, I talk about it with my kids a lot. And I think there are times when I'm thinking, well, maybe white families don't talk about it or maybe they don't think that they need to talk about it. Right. But I think the way that, you know, the way you put this out there, it really struck me. I think race, like you said, race, race influences all kids. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because um, I think a lot of a lot of the research on this topic, in fact, and a lot of the a lot of the work that that I'm familiar with, is really focused on the experiences of children of color, and in particular, Black children. Um, and a lot of this research has been conducted by Black psychologists and Black social scientists more broadly. And I think that that this work is so important, and it really highlights, um, you know, the 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 real struggles and challenges of raising children in a society that's racist or raising kids of color in a society that ultimately is structured by race and, and is, and is racist to the foundation of, of its very existence, right. Of, of our society. And so, um, I think that, that that is such important work and, and my work tries to build on that and say, well, you know, yes, of course, while children of color are experiencing racism, you know, white children are also, are also influenced by this, right? I mean, that's, that's part of, you know, white children are all racialized as white. And that brings with it so many privileges and advantages both today as well as historically. And so, you know, my work is trying to invite especially white parents who are, or people who are raising white children to start to think more critically about not only the conversations that they might not be having with their kids, um, and research shows that white parents do not talk with their children about race um, very often, especially in a way that's connected to like power and inequality and things like that. Um, but also how, what, how white parents are sending all kinds of implicit or subtle messages to their children about race. So, you know, we know that many white Americans embrace uh, colorblind logic, right? This idea that race no longer matters, that racism is, an, is no longer a problem in our society, that we need to stop talking about race and, and it'll go away. And I think that that's, you know, that approach to parenting is really problematic because you can talk to some, you talk to white kids for only a few minutes and you realize that they, of course, see race, of course, they notice race. Um, and so to, to not talk about it, I don't, I don't know that that, that that does anything other than, you know, sort of ignore the realities around us all. So, yeah, I, you know, I have a lot to say about that, but I think in general, um, you know, if we think about theories of race, you know, white folks might feel like they're quote unquote normal because whiteness has been normalized, right? That doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean though that, that their whiteness doesn't shape their lived experiences, shape their opportunities, shape the way that they're treated when they go about their daily lives. And so, um, yeah, I guess this book is really trying to trying to, to to remind us all that that white people have race, that white kids have race. Race is part of all of our experiences, even if it might be rendered invisible to those that are in positions of racial privilege. And I think, I mean, again, I think that's that's fascinating, even for someone. So, I mean, I, I identify. I mean, I have like I think as we all do, we have multiple um, identifiers, right? And growing up biracial well at the time I didn't know I was biracial I was I was sort of I, I didn't find out until I was older but I kind of knew that I was that I was different right so even having um, a light skin complexion right or when people may may having assumptions about a whiteness right there's a privilege in some ways being African-American and looking the way that I do right but I still have to contend with the fact that you know, I have a black father, I have a black mother, I, I have an identity, I identify as black and, and I talk about those issues. But I think, but I, I like, I love the fact that and the premise that we all need to talk about it, right? And, and it impacts all of us. Um, and not just in the, not just in the ways that I think, 
think unfortunately in in science and in in medicine right we talk about um we, we we even normalize whiteness in terms of how do we compare right health disparities is it's, right. it's against the normative um so white people have normative health consequences so there's a privilege there as well when we talk about differences in terms of health and well-being but in many instances now i think with some some changing changing data right whiteness does not always protect so it yeah. so i think it'll be fascinating over time as we start to sort of deconstruct um how race has privilege, but then you also overlay as well um, the fact um, social social status, right, and economic status, and how that interplays with um, the discussion of race um, in white families. Yeah, I mean, the the reason I wanted to study families that were not just experiencing the privileges of whiteness, but also experiencing class privilege or economic privilege, um, was because you know I wanted to I wanted to find families who, you know, when they had basically any choice available to them about how to set up their children's lives you know, what choice did they make? Like, why did they choose the school that they did? Why did they choose to live in the neighborhood that they did? You know, when, when faced with all of the different choices available, which ones do they make? And how are those decisions shaped by race and shaped by their perceptions of, you know, what, what kind of neighborhood is a quote unquote good neighborhood or what school is, you know, a bad school. Um, and so I think that by, by looking at, by looking at the topic of racial learning from this perspective, I was able to really identify identify the the sort of um, decisions that parents are making and how that plays a powerful role in the in the in the social worlds that kids then live in right these parents are setting up their children's lives and, and the environments that they then um, you know interact with with other kids and with media and with um, teachers and, and coaches and so on um, so yeah so so I think that that ultimately, um, you know, race and class, we know, are interrelated and they and they shape, you know, each other. Um, a lot of times, people tell me that my research is really a book about class, and I don't under I don't understand that. Um, you know, there's there's one example uh, from the research, in fact, where there's this dad and he's telling me about how his white child going to a, a you know racially diverse public school decides to pull his kid out of that school in the middle of the school year. And he tells me that it was because there was a ra- there was a racist incident at school and it upset his little white child, a little white girl. She, I think she was 10 at the time. And so in the middle of the school year, he was able to pull his child out of that classroom and send her, enroll her in and pay for her to attend a really expensive private school. And so, you know, I, I bring that example up in this conversation because I think it really highlights how, you know, on the one hand, he's able to use his class privilege to exit that environment at his choosing and be able to, you know, have the money ready to go to pay for her to go to this other school. But it also demonstrates, on the other hand, his racial privilege, that he can, you know, walk away from racism whenever he chooses, that he, he can he can remove his child from this, this uh, you know, situation and they can they can carry on with their lives. And so I think that, you know, it's important to understand that race and class work together in lots of different ways. Um, there's really interesting research about the black middle class, for example, and how, you know, the, the experiences that black middle class parents, you know, face in terms of racial discrimination, despite the fact that they have class privilege, right? So I just, I think it's important to understand as a sociologist that race and class are interrelated and they shape people's experiences. 
what I find so fascinating, right, is the the way that you were able to conduct the research, right? I mean, and again, I'm I'm not a not a sociologist, but again, it's almost sort of observational, right? You're taking in what people are saying, you're observing how people are living, how they how they how they live work live, work as a family, um, and just their day to day interactions. And I just found it fascinating, like how you could how you could keep yourself separate. I mean, you probably I mean you can you can answer this or not. Um, how you able to kind of stay observational and not kind of go over that line? Because I know as I was reading the book, there were times when you know I got emotional. There were some things that angered me, some things that were like okay that were disturbing that were said and not really like okay I can't believe this really happens, but I know it happens. But then also got to a point where I'm like okay I can understand like there's context for it now. So I was just wondering what what was that process for you in understanding. Um, and observing your families and being able to stay neutral and not react to things that were shared in the interviews? Yeah, that's such a great and important question. Um, And it really gets to my methodological approach. Um, You know, I am a white woman, and I think that that status allowed me to enter these communities and these spaces um, in a way that that I tried to, I tried to think about that strategically, right? So, um, many of the parents, for example, told me that if I was not white, they would not have had these conversations with me. I mean, they were pretty explicit about that. Um, I was able to, you know, I, I provide childcare for some of the families in the study. I really had, you know, full access to these kids, the private lives of these kids, right? The, the birthday parties and, and, you know, soccer, driving kids to soccer practice and all these things that, that, that were going on. And I think, it's, and I really tried to, um, I talk in the appendix about this, but I really tried to think about my own whiteness in this project and how it shaped not only the way that the data that I could gather, um, but also then my interpretation of it. And I do, you know, we talk about this in ethnography as, you know, I am part of this project, right? I, I tried my best to present um, a portrayal of how the people in this book were making sense of their world. And I, I think that I did that. I, I, you know, those, those of the, the parents that were in this book that have read it have told me that they do feel like I got it right. They might not, you know, like all the aspects of, of, of themselves or they, you know, kind of, I think about it as like looking in a mirror and not always liking what you see, but and I certainly think that, that the experiences of the, of the families that I was able to you know, their lives that I was able to access certainly resonate with families all over the country. I mean, since this book has come out, I've had so many affluent white parents say, wow, this sounds a lot like me and I really need to, to do some thinking. Um, so, you know, I think on the one hand, I want to just be really clear that I was part of this process, right? My own whiteness shaped this, shaped this process. I think my own gender probably shaped this process, thinking that I was good with kids because I'm a woman, which I, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that I'm good with kids, that is. But, um, you know, so so I think that, that, that I did shape it. Now, I will say that when I was conducting the field work and especially the interviews, I would keep track of my own emotions because I didn't want my own emotions to be, uh, you know, this book is not about my emotions, right? This book is about race. Racism and, and the experiences um, that these kids were having in, na- in navigating our, our, society, our racialized society. So I did keep a separate notebook, for example, about 
you know, my reactions to things that I noticed in the community or things that people said in in an interview that I was really upset by. I tried to really um, separate those for myself so that when I went back and coded my data and analyzed the the patterns, I was able to draw some distinctions. Um, I will also add that in my normal life, like taking care of, you know, my niece and nephew or kids that, that I, that I uh, have in my life, I think I would behave differently than I did in this book. Right. So there are moments in this book where I'm observing children, try to figure out something about race and they're asking me questions about it. And I think ordinarily I would give them some guidance or, or at least, you know, try to help them figure that out. But in the context of being an ethnographer and conducting research, I did a lot more asking of further questions like, Oh, well, why do you think that, you know, why, what makes you think that that's true or, you know, those kinds of questions. And so I do think there were moments where I felt a little conflicted because I didn't know if I should intervene and be like, all right, here's the deal. Or if I should sort of let kids, um, share their ideas with me, which is what I was, I was after. So long answer to your question, but it's something that I've thought a lot about now, but it's also something that, that I was constantly thinking about when I was collecting the data. I mean, I could just imagine, um, how much restraint you had to have. Um, but at, but at the same time, I think developmentally, you know, some of the, some of the questions that you pose, like you sort of reflected back to the, to the, to the, to the, um, young people in the book, I think was still informative because I think even as a parent sometimes, right, I think my, you know, my experience being a parent is it is easy to, to like just make a solution, right? But to have someone critically think about a topic or a, a situation that happened and have them sort of kind of process it, I think it, I think is lovely, right? Because hopefully, as you're saying, as opposed to someone just telling a kid what they should and what shouldn't be right there's an opportunity for them to be actively involved and in trying to figure that out yeah I agree and I actually think that that's some of the advice that I've been giving you know parents are asking you know ask me for advice and I'm like well I I have lots of new questions for you to ask yourself I don't know if I have lots of good answers but um certainly I I agree I think that that you know this fear that parents have about what their kids are going to say. I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly, but I, but I do think that, that those questions actually, when I ask children, like, well, why do you think that, you know, why is it that you think that, 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 you know, black basketball players um, have an extra muscle in their leg that makes them better at basketball? Like, where did you get that idea from? Like, why do you think that? I think you're right. I think that actually led to some more thoughtful um, reflection on the behalf of the kids, you know? So yeah, I think I think there's something to that. It just felt really awkward at times to not to not then eventually step in and say, you know, well, here's the history of this. Here's where these ideas come from. You know, I don't know where you got them, but, you know, please don't think that this is true. Right. Like that that part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because from a reader. Right. You know, like even if you're watching like a television show, you're like, don't go in there. That's not what you're right. <laughs> like. You're like you kind of want to go into the book and like. Oh my God, that is the wrong information. <laughs> so, but, but I think I, mean, I think you did it. I think you did a great job. Well, thanks. <laughs> so, I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of different theories of racial learning. So, we talked a little bit about racial social racial socialization, but I, there was a new term that was that was new to me or terminology: comprehensive racial learning. So, I was wondering if you could differentiate the two for for me. Well, it's, I like to, I like to learn. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, I think that 
that they're very they're very similar. Um, the term comprehensive racial learning is actually a term that my colleague Erin Winkler uh, came up with, and what she's trying to get at in this in this concept is that racial learning is happening outside of the home for one. Um, kids are playing an active rather than a passive role in this process um, for, for, for two. And then thirdly, that um, all of this is kind of interconnected. So what's happening, you know, how a parent answers a question about race that their child might have is often quite, is often linked to like an experience that the child has had outside the home that they have brought back to home and are asking their parents to, to talk about. So I think that, that racial socialization is a concept that really has historically focused on the messages that parents are conveying to their children about race and race-based communications. Um, and racial or comprehensive racial learning is, is building from that and saying, yes, racial socialization is happening. And also there are these other pieces to this puzzle as well. Um, in some ways, I think that Comprehensive racial learning is a more sociological approach to thinking about it, and racial socialization might, you know, it, racial socialization certainly has, I think, more roots in developmental psychology and thinking about, again, studies where parents are self-reporting, you know, how many times they have a certain kind of conversation or, um, you know, how they respond to a racist hate crime that happens and, you know, the kinds of language they're using to talk to their kids about it. So, the terms are, are, of course, related, but I do think that, um, and I certainly use them somewhat interchangeably, but I do think that if we're getting down to the real um, theoretical level, comprehensive racial learning is just thinking about um, you know, the, the broader context of this process and thinking about children as being central to it. Which I think is amazing, too, because I think, I mean, I always like the idea of, you know, the concept of my... my um, podcast is really about raising healthy and thriving kids right and i think it in spe- specifically black children but i think if all kids can can have agency or we can allow them to participate in the process and we work with them and guide them i think i think that ultimately will help them um be, be healthy and thrive so i think that's i think that's amazing i love i love how we can incorporate young people young people's voices um into the work that we work that we do and also giving you know, acknowledge acknowledging um, what roles they play as well. Absolutely. So, in your research, was there anything? I don't know if there was just one thing or anything that that surprised <laughs> that surprised you. Oh, that is a good question. Um, you know, I think I actually was surprised at. Um, I guess I guess something that I hadn't thought a lot about before I started this project was that kids. I don't know why I didn't think about this, but that children and parents like argue and have like conflict and fight with each other about things. Um, and so one of the things that I became really fascinated about were like family discussions where about race, where parents and children disagreed. Um, and I was really curious about how that played out. And, um, you know, there were moments, for example, where, you know, this, I remember one of the kids came home from school and was complaining to her mom about how all the black girls at school, quote unquote, segregate themselves off and they don't, you know, they don't talk to the white girls or whatever. And then the mom is like, yeah, but don't you segregate yourself off like you and your, you know, white friends, like, don't you do that too? You know, some of the kind of, we're talking about it. So, you know, those kinds of moments were so interesting where you can see 
um, and these, this is of course happening in families that are, that are talking about race, but you can really see the, I don't know, like some of the, the, the ways that kids are thinking come out, but also how parents are thinking. Certainly there were other examples where, you know, the kid would say, oh, this thing happened and I thought it was racist. And the parents would say, oh, that's not racist, honey. Like you're just overreacting. You know, you're, that's not true. And the kid, you know, the, the children getting really angry with their parents for not taking them seriously and minimizing this, this, um, you know, this, this, this thing they had noticed. And so I guess that's one thing that surprised me. It was just the that how often I saw that. And, and it's not something that you can create. It's, it's like, that's why the observational part to this study is so important because I can't just ask parents, Oh, do you remember a time where you argued? You know, it's hard sometimes to come up with specific examples, but seeing it unfold right in front of you, um, in, in, a, in a really kind of organic way, I think is uh, really, really interesting. And really, I think tells us a lot about how these family based communications actually play out. Yeah, so I'm thinking as as you're saying that, um, Maggie. I'm thinking to myself. I'm glad there's no sociologists in my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, th- I mean, but I think you you probably have like wonderful insights um, <laughs> that you could share. I mean, these these parents, I think, were very brave to do this. Um, and again, I understand the context that that it was done in, but I I, I still think they they were brave because I mean, they say some things. Um, they were unguarded in, in many instances. And I'm thinking, mm, I, I, yeah, I think they're very brave for, to share, to share the things that, that some of them did, some of them, them shared. Yeah. And I, and I think that letting a researcher into your, into your, into your home and into your family is really brave. And certainly I'm very critical of many of the things that these parents said and, and that the children said. Um, but I think the larger, you know, I don't, this isn't a book about like individually calling out white people for saying things that are racist, right? This is about a larger picture of how white families in the United States today are raising their kids and how these processes are reproducing ideologies or belief systems that serve to, you know, uphold the racial status quo, which is, you know, a racially unequal society. And so I think the larger project of trying to understand the reproduction of racism and racial inequality, um, for me, that's, you know, that was the goal. And I'm not really interested in demonizing any of the parents. Um, and I do really appreciate them for being in the study because I think the study has allowed us collectively to understand these processes a little bit more. And I think the other thing, again, that I think you definitely underscore is the fact that racism impacts us all, right? So, it's, you know, whether I like it or not, whether, you know, whiteness is considered normative, it has privileges to it, right? It is what it is, right? It's It's been set up from the from the development of our society. The United States is built on um, defining race and then who's going to be on top based and then determining privilege, right? So that's historically the case, and then to kind of be in the be in a situation where you now have to sort of question um, your place or that place when you may not you know you may not have had to think of yourself as a race or in in that race racism discussion. I think that is I think that's really kind of mind blowing. And it and initially it is hard to accept. Right? It's like okay, I have to do it all the time, right? Or it feels like I have to do it all the time as a black parent, but at the same time being open to understanding the context of certain families and why it is it may be harder 
or why it is they haven't spoken about it or the fact that I do know that there are families talking about it, you know, is 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 really is really important, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. So one of my other questions was based on your research, did you learn anything new about yourself or was there has the book had any any long longer lasting impact on your current work or thoughts for current work or future work? Yeah. So my book came out, as I mentioned, I, you know, this took a long time to do this project. I spent two years collecting the data and then years analyzing it and writing, you know, writing a book takes a long time, but it finally came out about a year and a half ago. And I think that it's actually been the reception of the book that has um, made me think in new ways or maybe even think sort of learn new things um, than, than maybe even the the data collection or the writing of it. Um, And I say that because I felt pretty, I did not have a lot of hope when I finished this study because I felt like one of the things I really found, one of the major findings is that even white families that said that they cared deeply about racial justice and racial equality, when it came to their own children, they often made decisions that perpetuated those forms of inequality, like the very forms of inequality that they otherwise rejected. And so I felt very hopeless because I'm like, all right, well, even if the families who are committed to, you know, trying to raise anti-racist children, if even they are still engaging in some of these practices of giving their child the best, um, even when that comes at a cost to everybody else, you know, I don't really know. I don't really know if, if parenting is where we should be focused on in terms of an intervention, right? Maybe we need to just focus on making our schools more equal, making our, you know, distributing, you know, redistributing wealth, you know, these broader kinds of institutional changes, which oftentimes are what sociologists are really arguing for. Um, but, you know, since I've shared this work across the country and, and been able to meet so many different people, I actually do feel more hopeful. And I think that um, there are some good examples of, of folks who are partnering with members of their community of color and also other like racial justice organizations. Um, there, there's some really powerful work happening across the country right now when it comes to this topic. Um, and so I, I have felt a little bit more positive, I suppose, in, in that regard. And um, I think, you know, that, that some of my calls at the end of the book for, for thinking more about you know, what kinds of gifts do we want to give the future generation, right? Do we want to give our kids these gifts of, you know, you get to go to the most exclusive college or university and I'm going to make sure you get there? Or do we want to think about giving kids the gift of living in a society that has less violence and is more equal and where people care for one another? And, you know, I think that that those things are important too. And I don't, I don't think that we can simply focus on the institutional level, I think that we need to do that, but we also need to think about the individual level and parents and the kinds of things that they're teaching their kids. And, um, and I don't know, I think I feel more hopeful that we can, we can have some impact, um, overall, if we think about, you know, these dynamics that are happening for, for people who, um, you know, they could make different decisions and their kids' lives would turn out a lot differently. So I don't know, I guess, I guess my answer is that it's been more me sort of thinking about the 
the intervention of my research and how it can be implemented that has led me to ask some new questions and has certainly shaped my future research. Um, really quickly, I, you know, some of my new work has looked at kids growing up in the era of Trump and how they're making sense of politics and racism. So sort of bridging ideas of racial socialization with ideas of political socialization. Um, and thinking a lot about, and, and this study actually is, um, a research project where I'm comparing children growing up in Mississippi versus kids that are growing up in Massachusetts, and I'm looking across race and class lines. So I have a really awesome team of research assistants, um, some graduate students that have been helping me with this project, and um, certainly that's been interesting to, to talk to kids who, um, who who hear the president of the United States say explicitly racist things, and then to sort of hear them interpret that and make sense of that and think about it. Um, it's been really powerful for me. So that's, so that's sort of the, new, the, the direction my research is, is going, at least for now. Oh, that sounds exciting. Um, so I mean, you, I think you may have answered this question, but I was just curious about how do you think the book's impact, what, or what do you think the book's impact has been on the discussion of race and racism? Well, it's hard to know, but I do think that certainly this book highlights a lot of things that, um, you know, first of all, my book can only speak to the to the families in my study. It's not a generalizable study, right? It's not some like you know nationally representative sample or anything like that. But based on the conversations I've had over the last year and a half, I do think that this book is getting at and highlighting some of the key debates and, and conversations and controversies that are happening across the country. I have been to school districts across the country, and everywhere I go, I hear different versions of the same story about the ways that 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 race is playing out in these schools, the way that racism is being handled or not handled at schools. Um, you know, I, I hear the same kinds of, of things about neighborhoods and about the, the perceptions that people have of certain neighborhoods and, and all of this stuff. And so I do think that my, at least I hope that this book provides some empirical evidence that um, can can allow people to have new convert, new conversations. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I don't have all the answers. People often ask me, how can I raise an anti-racist child? And I don't have a clear-cut answer. I don't think that there is a clear-cut answer. I don't think that's how anti-racism works, and I don't think that that's um, I don't think that's possible to just you know if it was if that was just an easy thing, then I think someone before me probably would have, would have already had the answer. Um, I think it's this is a really complex and complicated and nuanced um, discussion, and so. And I think this discussion also looks different in different communities, right? I think there are a lot of things that are similar, but there are also some really unique differences. And so I, I don't have all the answers, but I do think that my work hopefully can help communities, particularly white affluent communities, ask some new questions about things that perhaps they've taken for granted or that they don't want to speak openly about. Um, and, and maybe also you know, if I'm, if I'm really optimistic, um, get people to think a little bit more about what it means to raise a good child. What does it mean to be a good parent? Is being a good parent giving your kid everything at the expense of, of other children? Or is being a good parent thinking about the collective and thinking about the community and thinking about how you can use your position to help people around you as well as your own child thrive and be healthy and, and live a good life? Um, so, I mean, I don't know if that's that's happening but that that's my that's my hope i mean i i mean and i i agree with you i think i mean at this point there's got to be hope but there's got to be i think the fact that we're talking more about racism not just in the context of how it impacts people of color because i think 
I mean, I think those are important conversations. I have those conversations all the time on my podcast, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that if it's just from the viewpoint of persons of color, right, then there's no buy-in or need to buy-in from other groups, right? Um, So then I think it's easier to say that it doesn't impact me because it's just people of color who have to deal with racism. When it does impact us all, right, we we live here collectively, and so we're all shaped by racism and, and, and structure, social structures. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that really, um, it brings to mind, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Jonathan Metzl, but some of his new work, um, Dying of Whiteness is, is a book that he has that came out recently. And I think that that book really demonstrates that racism hurts white people too, right? I mean, I don't think that's a good enough, I don't think that's the, the, the only argument against racism. I think the, the argument that racism hurts people of color is, you know, that is the ar- ultimate argument. But he brings some nuance to it to say that this also hurts white people. Um, and he goes through looking at gun laws, looking at um, health care, and looking at education. And he really shows how, you know, a lot of these policies that people, that white people disproportionately support ultimately undermine their own health um, and well-being. And so I think that I think that there's there's a lot to this story that um, about you know race in America that that really I, I think includes as you said our collective you know all of us. Yeah, and I think uh, and I and I think that's why I'm so proud of the AAP's policy statement on racism impact in, impact on children and adolescents, right? Because um, as much as it does highlight um, you know traditionally marginalized communities, whether it be Hispanic communities, Latinx communities, Native American communities, Black communities, Asian communities. Um, we talk about both bystander, perpetrator, and victim, right? And yeah. that's and that can be any one of us at any particular time. And it does impact us. Uh, it may not impact us equally, but it does impact us universally. Absolutely. And I, and I was so happy when I saw that, that statement come out. So thank you for all of the, the hard work that I know that you, that you and others put into that. Oh, I'll give a shout out again to Dr. Maria Trent and Dr. Daniel Dooley, um, who, who were the lead authors, lead authors on that policy statement. And I was honored to be a part of it. Um, but again, it, it just, it just, it just really is so impactful, so important that I think we're not going to really address a lot of um, inequities if we don't really get to the heart of racism being a, an important um, foundation, right, for for causing many of these inequities. And if we don't address it, like you said, in terms of social policies, political decisions, laws, educational decisions, that we're going to continue to have um, a separate yet not equal, right, no matter how much we say that. Um, we're this melting pot, right? Not everything's melting, right? Not everything is is homogenous, right? You, there's there's got to be room for understanding that there are differences, respecting those differences, but at the same time, understanding that there are impacts to differences that we allow to conti- that con- uh, that are allowed to continue based along racial lines. Absolutely. So I oh I love the work that you do. Um, I did have one other question. And you may have answered this already. I was as I was as I was reading from the book, right? And I know you can't you can't give a lot of answers because I think sociology, again, understanding that science more, um, you really po- you pose a lot of questions, pose a lot of 
discussions for people to kind of think about, okay, how do we do these different? How can we do things differently? How can we build a society that's different? How do we address things differently? But overall, in your observation, how if if white parents are concerned about how they may be perpetuating racism, how what ways did you observe that they are inadvertently perpetuating racism, white parents specifically? Yeah, so, you know, one of my major arguments in the book, if not the ultimate argument, is that what parents say about race to their children often matters far less than what they do. So there's often this focus, like every time there's a racist hate crime, I see all these blog posts and and newspaper articles and and op-eds that are written about how white parents need to talk to their children about racism. And while I certainly think that that is true, I think that what my research demonstrates is that their actions actually speak louder than their words, right? So the things that parents are doing when they set up their children's lives, like the neighborhoods they're living in, the schools they're attending, which soccer team they get their kids onto, um, where they go on vacation and how they talk about that, um, the extracurricular activities, the media they consume, all of these things are really important because they send messages to children about race. I think the most a straightforward example is driving through a neighborhood with a white child, actually start the book with this, and um, stopping at a McDonald's and him looking out the window and seeing a group of black children doing exactly what he and his friends do after school every day, which is, you know, have a little snowball fight, run around, you know, whatever. And he tells me that he knows we're not in a good neighborhood. And, you know, that moment is so straightforward and powerful because he's looking out the window, he's seeing black children, and he's identifying this neighborhood as not a good neighborhood. And so his parents never said that to him. You know, I interviewed them. I spent two years with them. But the reality is that children are getting these messages from from a host of different places. Um, But I think a lot of it has to do with the decisions parents are making about how to set up their lives. And so even for for white parents that have really good intentions, they, they think that they're doing everything, you know, they're trying their best to do everything right um, in terms of raising an anti-racist child. I think sometimes if they're only thinking about that in terms of what they say, they're missing a huge piece of it, which is that the, 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 the racial context of childhood that they construct for their, for their kids, that is also really meaningful. Um, and so in addition to trying to advocate for their kids to have more resources or hoarding opportunities for their kids at the school, um, getting their, using their social networks to get their kids into these coveted internships and summer programs, you know, using, using whatever, whatever forms of, of the, you know, capital whiteness is how sociologists talk about it. You know, those kinds of things, um, you know, using those to get their children ahead is ultimately um, also a piece of this. So um, I think that the, the book really tries to highlight these different ways that white parents are inadvertently perpetuating racism. Um, and that's true for even for parents who have an explicit anti-racist agenda um, on, on their minds. Oh man, this is I could talk to you even longer, but I thank you so much. I thank you so much time so much for your time, Maggie, for joining us today to talk about um your book. Well, th- thank you. And thank you for all the important work that you do. I'm a huge fan of you. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to, to share um, time with you and, and have this conversation. Awesome. If people want to learn more about you and your work, uh, Maggie, where can they where can they find you? 
Um, so you can, the book itself is available either through NYU press or on Amazon. Um, but I also have a website, uh, margarethakerman.com. Um, it's not very sophisticated, but it does have some information there that, um, you know, can help people think about, um, maybe some of, some of these, some of these topics. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on What is Black Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And for more information about the podcast, our blogs, and subscribe to our upcoming newsletter, go to our website at whatisblack.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode. And don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. Until next time, thank you for listening.